Hello there, podcast listener. Amber Noel here. It's my turn to be a listener now. I would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. The Living Church, as you might know, is a nonprofit communications ministry with a heart for Christian unity, especially in the Anglican communion. And we want to keep our mission sharp in all we do, including the podcast, and have fun, obviously. But would you write to me and let me know how we're doing? What's the podcast doing for you? Is it making a difference in your thinking, your ministry, your prayer life, your daily walk with your golden doodle? Do you have some hot takes on what we could do better? I want to hear it all. I might even read your comments on the next episode. There are so many great podcasts out there. I want to do more of what The Living Church is here to do and less of what it's not. So there are two things you can do to help. First, make sure you're following us from a podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Find us on the page and click follow. The second thing you can do is email me, ambernoel at livingchurch.org. Share with me a thing or two you've gotten from the podcast over the years. And if you want, include something we might do better. Help us stay not just a great podcast, but on mission. Follow us, email me, A-M-B-E-R-N-O-E-L at livingchurch.org. I can't wait to hear from you. The Living Church, Catholic, Evangelical, Ecumenical. Humans are an interesting species, aren't we? We are blessed and humbled by God's incarnation as one of us and by everything that he's done since that incarnation. And this story of what God has done as our incarnated Lord is what we call the gospel. But what about all the other 8 million species on the planet? Are they important at all to this story or are they a backdrop? What are the implications of the gospel for non-human animals? Now, except on the feast day of St. Francis, when some of us are going to take our dogs and cats and gerbils to be blessed by the parish priest, animals in relation to the liberating gospel of Jesus Christ may not be something we often think about. So today we're going to hear from Professor David Clough. He is the author of a systematic theology series called On Animals. And David is Professor of Theological Ethics in the Department of Theology and Religious Studies at the University of Chester in Northwest England. He's also a lay preacher in the UK Methodist Church. And his series on animals has been called the most important and comprehensive theological treatment of animals to have appeared at any time in the Christian tradition. His current work is basically a call for more Christian reflection on the way humans use and relate to our non-human neighbors in order to be more effective witnesses to the good news. He even unpacks some deep connections animals have with coronavirus, racial disparity, and climate change. We hope you enjoy this conversation. I read several months ago, I I saw a review of your um, two volume on animals uh, last summer in the Christian century. I was was so interested in your book um, because I have always 
been really interested in animals in their inner lives. I've always loved animals since I was a little girl. I love the Chronicles of Narnia and the idea of of animals having the, this life before God. When I heard that you had written this this two volume work, I thought, okay, I'm, I this is very fascinating to me. I want to educate myself a little bit more theologically. I myself have a an MDiv and. Um, David, you primarily work in the realm of ethics. And about 15 years ago, you were most known for a book about the ethics of war. And now you've written what you call the beginning of a systematic theology focused on animals, which no one else has yet done. And the realm of animals, particularly non-human animals, has become your theological focus. How did that happen? (laughs) I think it was a question that seemed really important to me. And as I talked to sort of fellow Christians in uh, churches that I belong to and fellow Christian theologians and fellow Christian ethicists, I became aware that it was something of an unusual question to be concerned about what the implications of Christian faith were for uh, the way we think and do in relation to animals. And so as I began to generate sort of post a PhD on Karl Barth's ethics, uh, a sort of laundry list of ethical issues that seemed important and worth my time. Animals got you know, quite quickly to the top of that list because it seemed to me that uh, it was both really significant and there was a dearth of uh, people working on the issue. So those, those seemed to be two really good uh, reasons. I turned vegetarian as soon as I uh, went to university at age 18. Um, and I've been vegetarian and vegan for sort of all of the time uh, since. And so it's, for, you know, for all that time, the, the question to me has seemed really urgent. And so in a sense, I turned to it in the sense of how could I make a theological and ethical case to fellow Christians about why this might be worth our time? Well, I'd like to help you to make that case a little bit today by playing the devil's advocate very slightly. I'm wondering why a systematic theology of non-human animal life in such times, especially when we feel the urgency of basic human issues, why is thinking theologically about animals not a boutique theological interest or something that we can think about that when we've got some theological leisure time, like the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Why should we think about this, David? Mm-hmm. So I suppose I'll come at that in two directions. Uh, first of all, a sort of direction from fundamental theology. It seems to me that the reason why we ought to be concerned about a theology can give an account of uh, non-human animals and the wider creaturely world is because of a fundamental Christian commitment to monotheism. You know, if Christians worship a God who is the God not just of uh, the creatures of members of the species Homo sapiens, but is the God of all creatures, then it seems to me we need to have a theology that's competent to uh, address the whole of creaturely life. Uh, so that's that's humans, that's other animals, that's plants, that's um, viruses, that's minerals, that's you know stars and black holes. And given how much of the universe isn't us. Unless we have a theological, you know, a theology that's big enough to understand and comprehend the workings of God in relation to the whole of creaturely life and the whole of, uh, you know, creatures beyond the living, then it seems to me we'll we'll have a 
you know, a theology that's incompetent, a theology that, that doesn't hang together, a theology that doesn't make sense, a theology that will fail as soon as people begin to ask important critical questions. And so I think that's the first reason we ought to be concerned about a theology of the more than human world, including animals. And then the second kind of approach I would come to, you know, how can we possibly afford to give theological and ethical time to thinking about animals in the context of all these uh, human challenges that confront us is, first of all, we're pretty much going to run out of wild animals unless we change course quite rapidly, given how far we are expanding industrialized animal agriculture. So by the year 2000, the combined biomass of all domesticated animals was 24, 24 times bigger than that of all wild land mammals. And so the, the kind of scale and magnitude of what we're doing to animals um, is utterly remarkable. In the 20th century, we fished 90% of the fish out of the sea. So un unless we give attention to this sometime soon, we are you know, given that given the way that industrialized animal agriculture is sort of taking away habitats from from wild animals, as you know, exemplified in that kind of statistic, there'll be virtually no wild animals for us to be uh, concerned about. So it's really urgent. We can think about more than one thing at a time. So I'm never uh, in favor of people you know, taking up a concern for animals and then uh, immediately neglecting all human social justice issues. We can we can think of we can we can hold we can juggle more than one uh, thing ethically at once. And then thirdly, what we discover as we begin to look into these animal questions is that they intersect very, very uh, substantially with concerns about other things that we care about, human beings and the environment. And so because of that intersection, it, for the most part, we don't have to choose between being concerned about animals, being concerned about humans, uh, and being concerned about the environment. Very many of the things that we need to do are win-win-win uh, in relation to humans, uh, other animals, and the environment in terms of the you know, urgent changes that we need to make. It sounds like what you're saying is that far from being a, a niche theological interest, to think about animals, to be prayerfully considering and redirecting our relationship with animals, wild animals and domestic animals, that this actually is intertwined with our ability to be Christian in this moment. I'm hearing you say that our witness is at stake and our maybe even our ability for the gospel to be compelling. I absolutely think so. And I bump into people regularly who say, you know, who, who come across me talking about animals and they you know, come up to me at the end of a talk and say, oh, yeah, I used to go to church, but I just couldn't understand how, you know, the people in church either uh, didn't understand why I was concerned about animals or never had anything for me to eat as a vegetarian or vegan or actually actively tried to talk me out of being concerned for animals. It seems to me, if you look at the demographic shifts between kinds of things, you know, where uh, people are disproportionately like to be concerned for animals, to be thinking about change of diets and so on, that's mostly uh, younger people. And so it seems to me really clear that unless the Christian church has something plausible to say, when it's asked an animal question, it will become recognized as uh, irrelevant uh, by a growing proportion of uh, the kinds of people that it, uh, the church needs to, you know, wants to, to, to reach and attract. And, and what I struggle with is that so it seems so unnecessary because it seems to me that uh, Christian faith commitments can give a really, really strong account of why Christians have strong faith-based reasons for being concerned about animals. And then if we turn back to the history, we find that, say, in the 19th century in Britain, and then sort of later in the US, 
it was Christians that were at the forefront of making the case for the need for legislation against cruelty to animals. Uh, it was Christians that uh, recognised against the scientific and medical elites of the day in Britain uh, that vivisection should be abolished, um, and in, in the end, you know, uh, campaigned for its regulation. And so. It seems to me there's a really strong good news message in terms of the implications of Christianity for uh, uh, concern for animals, and the uh, the church is really missing a trick to be you know found on the back foot uh, and sort of embarrassedly not not either. Uh, recording the bits of scripture and theological tradition that embed concern for animals and not re- uh, recording this history of concern for animals, which is you know an, an honorable part of the traditions passed down to us. It does strike me that in the 19th century, there is this wave in um, the UK and in the United States of piety combined with social activism. So this this deep piety, even revivalism that was happening, um, for example, the Azusa Street revivals. Uh, I'm not sure how many people in Azusa Street became vegan, but what I mean is there seemed to be this outpouring of the Holy Spirit that was happening, this revival that was happening, so that both people's personal piety and their social consciousnesses were awakened. And then somehow, whatever the reasons, and I'm sure someone who's an expert in contemporary Christianity could could unpack this for us. But for some reason, this these two things that came together so in such a fiery way pulled apart again. So that now, um, when you have traditions, I come from I would say lightly evangelical, evangelical small e. I really come from a Pentecostal tradition, a denominationally Pentecostal tradition where personal piety is, um, oh, it's so emphasized. And, you know, the fire's got to fall on your altar. Um, God doesn't have any grandchildren. But then the inner logic of, of this piety, which is so beautiful, tends to contain this deeply contradictory logic when it comes to non-human animals and indeed when it comes to um, the the natural world, the environment. And I call it that as if we're not also a part of it. But and and this this contradiction is this. On the one hand, at its best, animals are these beautiful creatures. We love them. We have some of them in our homes. We can even experience something of the character of God through our relationships with them. But ultimately, we leave animals to God. They have their lives with God, which is mysterious, and that's on the one hand. But on the other hand, when it comes to using them, We treat them not as living things and certainly not as living things with their lives before their creator, but as disposable products. Of course, we don't want to let go of of the emphasis on the salvation of every human being, the beatific, you know, approaching the beatific vision. We have Christian freedom, Paul's words about, you know, meat and and being free to eat it, Peter's vision about the blanket coming down, the Lord's words to Adam and Eve in the garden about dominion. And yet we find ourselves in this very in this contradiction in which we are functionally quite cruel and, and quite brutal. Could you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. So my own um, roots are in uh, Methodism and, so, you know, obviously, you know, a common family tree with Pentecostal tradition, uh, sort of visions, a sort of Wesleyan vision of holiness, which includes a social holiness. And so I think the, the 19th century concern was, well, how do we, re- you know, what parts of society stick out as the kinds of things that 
manifest a sort of unchristian way of uh, relating to one another and, and to the world. And animal cruelty alongside, you know, egregious human injustices like slavery and so on were among the things that Christians said, this is incompatible with our faith. We need to change it. And so, you know, I, th- I see that Wesleyan uh uh, tradition for social holiness is a really strong basis of you know concern about this kind of issue in uh, the present. And then, as you say, um, Christians have often uh, looked at different aspects of uh, scripture and church teaching to justify sort of current practice, including practice in relation to uh, meat eating. But I think that that is not the same as you know reaching a well-reasoned conclusion that those texts do in fact give us permission for the kind of practice that we're currently engaged in, in relation to other creatures. And so both the Old Testament and the New Testament are pretty ambivalent about meat eating. You go to to and fro, it's controversial within uh, the New Testament community. But obviously, none of the uh, those Old Testament or New Testament contexts are are looking at the practice of mass industrialized uh, animal agriculture uh, on this huge scale and projected to grow by another 50 to 75 percent by 2050 with all of the implications for uh, wild animals and the uh, wider environment that it's uh, currently bringing uh, on us. And so I think Christians have, you know, along with large segments of the rest of society, sleepwalked into complicity with really radical transformations of how we're treating other animals and using them especially uh, for food without really seriously interrogating the compatibility of those practices uh, with Christian faith commitments. And so, you know, say in relation to uh, chickens, you know, it's only a few decades ago that we completely reinvented uh, the technology that produces chicken. It, you know, for my grandparents, it was a more expensive meat than uh, beef. But by the time you breed chickens so that they could reach slaughter weight in 35 days, uh, and you can grow them in these mass uh, indoor uh, sheds without ever seeing the light of day, subject them to really significant uh, suffering from their inability to support these kind of prematurely uh, weighty bodies. Once you've, once you've done that, um, then you can uh, mass market this new uh, kind of chicken, which is almost unrecognizably different uh, from the way in which it was previously produced. And then once you've separated raising chicken for meat and raising chicken for eggs, you've got the issue that with when you're breeding hens for eggs, all of the male chicks are just redundant byproducts of this industrial process. And so they're killed you know, through being dropped in, live into a grinding machine or being gassed or just being discarded as soon as they've been hatched. And when I talk to audiences about that as the reality, you know, just one small part of the reality of what we're doing to farmed animals in industrialized systems at the moment, I can, almost, I can hear people draw breath. Uh, and even well-educated audiences are just ill-informed about what is currently being done. And I think once we lay out a Christian vision of uh, animal life in which God delights in the flourishing of myriad kinds of of animal creatures in Psalm 104 or celebrates God's dealings with uh, all kinds of creatures in the closing chapters of Job and Jesus teaches that God uh, doesn't forget even a, a single sparrow. Once we juxtapose that kind of Christian vision of God's ways with creature life with the egregious wrongs in uh, our current practice of raising animals for food, I think people pretty quickly recognize that something's gone badly wrong. Did you know that the first issue of The Living Church magazine came out in 1878? 
it invited a small group of Midwestern American readers to be active, informed Christians, influencing their local communities and encouraging the highest possible standards in church teaching, preaching, music, art. If you're not a subscriber, consider it. Subscription rates start at $9.95 a year for digital and about $5 an issue for a traditional magazine. You can subscribe for our next issue at livingchurch.org and just click the subscribe tab. So this is actually far from an issue of freedom. I'm, as a Christian, I am free to not have scruples about eating a steak. That's, you're saying that that's not the issue because the way that animals enter our lives as food, for example, has become a system which is, which is hegemonic. I think of the way that prices for meat that uh, comes from animals that have had good lives, that have had well-rounded lives where they're able to express natural behaviors, they're able to um, grow from a baby to an adult in a natural way. They're able to have a, relatively speaking, safe and healthy life and, and relationships with other, with other animals. That that meat is so expensive and that milk is so expensive and those eggs are so expensive that it really has become a boutique market so that you have a, a socioeconomic disparity. I can tell you, I live in, in a part of town where if I head one way, it's going to be all grocery stores that um, carry barely any organic products and, and products that come from animals who are treated fairly. I'm just really, I'm not going to find that in those grocery stores. And that's because they're built in neighborhoods um, where people are generally speaking, making less money, where generally speaking, they're neighborhoods of color. And if I go one direction, um, it's going to be more white folks. It's going to be more young professionals. They know their audience. And so the exact same chain of grocery stores is going to stock their shelves differently and even um, raise their price points on the same items. It has become, I don't know how it is in the UK, David, but in the United States to shop organic or to buy um, animal products that are that are fairly taken from the animals. This is a way to separate people who make a bunch of money from people who don't. And often, I mean, you will find a color line between those who shop this way and those who can afford to shop this way and those who can't. But in your book, you have a whole section where you talk about animals and the poor. And you make the argument that the welfare of animals is deeply intertwined with the welfare of the poor. Could you speak to that for people who might, might not know anything about this? Yeah, I'm really glad to because it's it's one of these uh, points of intersection that I mentioned uh, before. It's one of the examples where we we can't choose between uh, human and animal uh, well-being because these things are so closely intertwined. Our treatment of animals is by no means obviously the only defect in our current uh, food system, but one of the ways in which things are going badly wrong is uh, currently we're taking about a third of all global grain output um, and feeding it to farmed animals rather than feeding it to human beings. And it turns out the calorific efficiency of taking food like that that humans could eat but uh, instead feeding it to farmed animals and eating the farmed animals instead, the efficiency of that is about 8%, 0.8%. 
So that means we're basically throwing away about a third of global grain supplies. And when I was researching this topic, I found um, back as far as Plato, philosophers and theologians had been saying um, it's really wasteful to take land that could be used for growing uh, arable crops and instead uh, using it to uh, graze uh, animals. Uh, And it's basically a pattern of uh, you know, across history and across countries uh, and continents, that uh, wealthy people have displaced poor people who are making a living through growing arable crops on a small scale. They've displaced the people and their crops. They've put animals in their place, and uh, they uh, the rich people make bigger profits from uh, the animals, but on a more wasteful basis. And so that's in Britain, that's the enclosures, uh, and then it's replicated in colonial practice. Uh, you know, so the Spanish arrive in South America and uh, displace. Uh, indigenous people with uh, what they called man-eating sheep uh, because uh, they're sort of uh, removing ways of living from uh, indigenous people. So again and again and again, we're displacing uh, sustainable arable uh, patterns with this uh, new foreign uh, livestock. And so what that means on a, is on a global scale, we are contributing to worsening human food security and worsening water security because there's a parallel story to tell in relation to water by prioritizing animal agriculture over human uh, well-being. Obviously, there's some places where you can only grow animals, but in a lot of places, we've got a choice and we're deciding to give, you know, wastefully uh, give resources to uh, animal agriculture and indulge in this subsidized luxury product. But in fact, it's not a luxury product anymore because the way we're producing it means that we're basically subsidizing junk food. And then that junk food, which, you know, consuming too much of has, you know, all these human Human, uh, health costs, as you say, that becomes the subsidized products of industrialized animal agriculture becomes virtually the only thing you can buy in large areas of uh, US uh, urban contexts and uh, similar contexts uh, elsewhere. So you get these areas of basically food apartheid, which is uh, what you're describing, where we decide about the kinds of food that different people can uh, eat. Um, and that has really disproportionate uh, effects on, you know, racially and socially, socially, socioeconomically driven. So the way in which what we're doing to animals intersects with what we're doing with all these kind of racial and uh, socioeconomic justice issues is is really compelling. And, you know, the latest example of that under the uh, COVID-19 pandemic is utterly remarkable, it seems to me, that the presidential order that slaughterhouse workers have to go to work even though their jobs, you know, which were already uh, had the highest injury rates of any jobs in the United States, even though their jobs subject them to increased risk from COVID-19, they have, they're forced to go to work. And those, those uh, groups of workers are disproportionately female, disproportionately Latinx, disproportionately black, disproportionately migrant, disproportionately undocumented. They're being forced to go to work. Five, at least 5,000 workers have already contracted COVID-19 in the slaughterhouses. At least 20 have died. Uh, and yet we can continuing to compel them to go to kill all these animals because industrialized animal agriculture is a sort of juggernaut that needs to be continually fed and can't be interrupted. So again, again, I would say it's really crucial to recognize that where almost wherever we're doing bad things to uh, non-human animals, we're doing bad things to uh, humans uh, too. And uh, these things intersect. We can make things uh, much better uh, for farmed animals, for wild animals, for exploited workers, and for the environment by some simple changes in our practice. I, I'm so glad you brought up the issue of COVID-19 because this is what spurred me to get in touch with you in the first place. When I was thinking about 
issues surrounding uh, the pandemic, I realized that the one involved audience that I wasn't hearing about in the whole thing were non-human animals, even though COVID-19 it said, I mean, they believe that we caught it from animals, that it developed in animals in a context of of farming animals for meat um, in ways that we can assume weren't completely safe and healthy for the animals, potentially, probably uh, abusive to some extent to these animals. And because of our maltreatment of these animals for meat, a disease developed, a new disease called COVID-19, which we then contracted, um, the result of our own sin. And now that we have it, one of the ways that we have to find cures and treatments is to gather tens of thousands, um, perhaps even hundreds of thousands of other animals and experiment on them to find vaccines, to find treatments. And so we have animal suffering and death from beginning to end in this whole process as we're trying to treat the disease that we ourselves are responsible for in some very profound way. Now, I know our time is limited, uh, so I want to ask you just one final question. There is so much more to discuss here, and this is just skating the surface of um, many of the things that you bring up in your um, systematic theology. It's called On Animals. Volume one is is theology. Volume two is ethics. What are some resources or some ways that you would suggest for folks to think further about this and find ways to... I'm going to say repent, to seek repentance or to inform our own consciences so that so that we can say, aha, I see now, I can see this now in the context of repentance, rather than someone saying, this is bad, don't do it, be politically correct. It's not about that. How can people come to this issue freely in order to understand it better, in order to really see our relations with animals um, and to do uh, rightly by them to do righteousness. Thanks. Yeah. So about five years ago, I set up, I've co-founded with uh, Sarah Withrow King, an organization called Creature Kind, which was specifically aimed at trying to take some of the findings from my academic work and uh, making them available to uh, churches and uh, Christians at large. And so if people visit uh, the website becreaturekind.org, you'll find all kinds of resources for beginning to think Christianly about uh, our relationships with uh, animals. And one of the key resources we offer there to uh, Christians and to churches is a small group course where there's a sort of uh, structured uh, six-week session. Uh, it's very open-ended, aimed at helping people to explore what does Christian faith mean for what we believe about animals and uh, how we should treat them. And it you know, includes biblical resources and some video content and uh, some uh, theological texts and lots of lots of uh, open-ended discussion to do exactly what you've uh, suggested to c- allow people to begin to explore these issues in a, in, in an open-ended way. Often, uh, engaging in the wrong way can trigger all kinds of defensive reactions. And I'm just really enthusiastic about just putting the question before fellow Christians saying, well, what does our faith mean for what we believe about animals and how we should treat them? And and how does that match up with how we're doing at the moment? And so I really commend uh, resources on the Creature Kind site, the blog, and uh, that course specifically. I really commend that as a really good way to begin to uh, engage with these 
issues. Another thing, if you're looking for a quick practical change in relation to catering uh, Christian events or organization events, you'd like to uh, respond to some of the challenges we've discussed by taking steps to reduce our overall consumption of animals, uh, which we see as one of the key take-home messages from engaging with this stuff. Uh, You might want to check out another project I initiated, which is called Default Veg defaultveg.org. And that just suggests whenever we do catering, we could make uh, vegetarian and vegan food, plant-based meals the default. And if people uh, want to eat meat, dairy and eggs, they can opt for that. But you you switch the default and in doing so, you achieve a really substantial uh, sort of macro effect on consumption patterns while letting everyone still choose what they want to eat. Thank you so much, David. And I hear in your recommendations uh, some uh, some shared history between you and I, spiritually speaking, uh, Methodism, Pentecostalism, emphasis on personal holiness, breaking habits of vice, breaking addictions, recognizing um, what enslaves us and pursuing freedom in Christ and pursuing habits of virtue, which then unfold to the benefit of our neighbors, including our non-human neighbors. Thank you so much, David, for your time today. It's a pleasure, Amber. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the Living Church Podcast, a ministry of the Living Church Institute. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can find a link in the show notes that will allow you to give so we can continue to make these episodes. Look for more episodes coming soon on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts these days. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, our website, livingchurch.org, or on our award-winning blog, Covenant, at livingchurch.org forward slash covenant. I'm Amber Noel, your host, and I've been glad to be with you. Peace.